Chapters 22 through 24 of Space Viking by H. Beam Piper. Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Space Viking 22. He succeeded the next morning in convincing everybody that he wanted to be alone for a while, and was sitting in a garden watching the rainbows in the midst of a big waterfall across the valley. Elaine would have liked that, but she wasn't with him now. Then he realized that somebody was speaking to him, in a small, bashful voice. He turned and saw a little girl in shorts and a sleeveless jacket, holding in her arms a long-haired blonde puppy with big ears and appealing eyes. "'Hello, both of you,' he said. The puppy wriggled and tried to lick the girl's face. "'Don't, Mopsy. We want to talk to this gentleman,' she said. "'Are you really and truly the Space Viking?' "'Really and truly. And who are you two?' "'I'm Myrna, and this is Mopsy. Hello, Myrna. Hello, Mopsy.' Hearing his name, the puppy wriggled again and dropped from the child's arms. After a brief hesitation, he came over and jumped onto Trask's lap, licking his face. While he petted the dog, the girl came over and sat on the bench beside him. "'Mopsy likes you,' she said. After a moment she added, "'I like you, too.' "'And I like you,' he said. "'Would you want to be my girl? You know, a space viking has to have a girl on every planet. How would you like to be my girl on Marduk?' Myrna thought that over carefully. "'I'd like to, but I couldn't. You see, I'm going to have to be queen some day.' "'Oh?' "'Yes. Grandpa is king now, and when he's through being king, Papa will have to be king. And then when he's through being king, I can't be king because I'm a girl. So I'll have to be queen. And I can't be anybody's girl, because I'm going to have to marry somebody I don't know, for reasons of state.' She thought some more, and lowered her voice. "'I'll tell you a secret. I am a queen now.' "'Oh, you are?' She nodded. "'We are queen in our own right, of our royal bedroom, our royal playroom, and our royal bathroom. And Mopsy is our faithful subject.' "'Is Your Majesty absolute ruler of these domains?' "'No,' she said disgustedly. We must at all times defer to our royal ministers, just like Grandpa has to. That means I have to do just what they tell me to. That's Lady Valerie, and Margot, and Dame Eunice, and Sir Thomas. But Grandpa says they're good and wise ministers. Are you really a prince? I didn't know space vikings were princes. Well, my king says I am. And I am ruler of my planet. And I'll tell you a secret. I don't have to do what anybody tells me. Gee, are you a tyrant? You're awfully big and strong. I'll bet you've slain hundreds of cruel and wicked enemies. Thousands, Your Majesty. He wished that weren't literally true. He didn't know how many of them had been little girls like Myrna and little dogs like Mopsy. He found that he was holding both of them tightly. The girl was saying, but you feel bad about it. These children must be telepaths. 
A space viking who is also a prince must do many things he doesn't want to do. I know, so does a queen. I hope Grandpa and Papa don't get through being king for just years and years. She looked over his shoulder. Oh, and now I suppose I've got to do something else I don't want to do. Lessons, I bet. He followed her eyes. The girl who had been his dinner companion was approaching. She wore a wide sunshade hat and a gown that trailed filmy gauze like sunset-colored mist. There was another woman, in the garb of an upper servant, with her. "'Lady Valerie, and who else?' he whispered. "'Margot, she's my nurse. She's awful strict, but she's nice.' "'Prince Trask, has Her Highness been bothering you?' Lady Valerie asked. "'Oh, far from it.' He rose, still holding the funny little dog. But you should say, Her Majesty. She has informed me that she is sovereign of three princely domains, and of one dear loving subject. He gave the subject back to the sovereign. You should not have told Prince Trask that, Lady Valerie chided. When Your Majesty is outside her domains, Your Majesty must remain incognito. Now Your Majesty must go with the Minister of the Bedchamber. The Minister of Education awaits an audience. Arithmetic, I bet. Well, good-bye, Prince Trask. I hope I can see you again. Say good-bye, Mopsy. She went away with her nurse, the little dog looking back over her shoulder. I came out to enjoy the gardens alone, he said, and now I find I'd rather enjoy them in company. If your ministerial duties do not forbid, could you be the company? But gladly, Prince Trask. Her Majesty will be occupied with serious affairs of state. Square root. Have you seen the grottoes? They're down this way. That afternoon, one of the gentlemen attendants caught up with him. Baron Cragdale would be gratified if Prince Trask could find the time to talk with him privately. Before they had talked more than a few minutes, however, Baron Cragdale abruptly became Crown Prince Edvard. "'Prince Trask, Admiral Schefter tells me that you and he are having informal discussions about cooperation against this mutual enemy of ours, Dunnan. This is fine. It has my approval. And the approval of Prince Vandervant, the Prime Minister, and, I might add, that of Goodman McKill.' I think it ought to go further, though. A formal treaty between Tanith and Marduk would be greatly to the advantage of both. I'd be inclined to think so, Prince Edvard. But aren't you proposing marriage on rather short acquaintance? It's only been fifty hours since the Nemesis orbited in here. Well, we know a bit about you and your planet beforehand. There's a large Gilgamesher colony here. You have a few on Tanith, haven't you? Well, anything one Gilgamesher knows, they all find out, and ours are cooperative with naval intelligence. That would be why Andre Dunnan was having no dealings with Gilgameshers. It would also be what Zaspar McCann meant when he ranted about the Gilgamesh interstellar conspiracy. I can see where an arrangement like that would be mutually advantageous. I'd be quite in favor of it. Cooperation against Dunnan, of course, and reciprocal trade rights on each other's trade planets, and direct trade between Marduk and Tanith. And Beowulf and Amaterasu would come into it, too. 
Does this also have the approval of the Prime Minister and the King?" Goodman McKill's in favor of it. There's a distinction between him and the King, as you'll have noticed. The King can't be in favor of anything till the Assembly or the Chancellor express an opinion. Prince Vandervat favors it personally. As Prime Minister, he is reserving his opinion. We'll have to get the support of the Crown Loyalist Party before he can take an equivocal position. Well, Baron Cragdale, speaking as Baron Trask of Traskin, suppose we just work out a rough outline of what this treaty ought to be, and then consult, unofficially, with a few people whom you can trust, and see what can be done about presenting it to the proper government officials. The Prime Minister came to Cragdale that evening, heavily incognito, and accompanied by several leaders of the Crown Loyalist Party. In principle, they all favored a treaty with Tanith. Politically, they had doubts. Not before the election. Too controversial a subject. Controversial, it appeared, was the dirtiest dirty name anything could be called on Marduk. It would alienate the labor vote. They'd think increased imports would threaten employment in Marduckan industries. Some of the interstellar trading companies would like a chance at the Tanith planets. Others would resent Tanith ships being given access to theirs. And Zaspar McCann's party were already shrieking protests about the nemesis being repaired by the Royal Navy. And a couple of professors who inclined toward McCann had introduced a resolution calling for the court-martial of Prince Bentrick and an investigation of the loyalty of Admiral Schefter. And somebody else, probably a stooge of McCann's, was claiming that Bentrick had sold the Victrix to the Space Vikings, and that the films of the Battle of Outhulma were fakes, photographed in miniature at the Navy moon base. Admiral Schefter, when Trask flew in to see him the next day, was contemptuous about this last. Ignore the whole bloody thing. We get something like that before every general election. On this planet you can always kick the Gilgameshers and the armed forces with impunity. Neither have votes, and neither can kick back. The whole thing'll be forgotten the day after the election. It always is. That's if McCann doesn't win the election, Trask qualified. That's no matter who wins the election. They can't any of them get along without the Navy, and they bloody well know it. Trask wanted to know if intelligence had been getting anything. Not on how Dunnan found out the Victrix had been ordered to Otholma, no, Schefter said. There wasn't any secrecy about it. At least a thousand people, from myself down to the shoeshine boys, could have known about it as soon as the order was taped. As for the list of ships you gave me, yes. One of them puts into this planet regularly. She spaced out from here only yesterday morning. The Honest Horus. Well, great Satan, haven't you done anything? I don't know if there's anything we can do. Oh, we're investigating, but... You see, this ship first showed up here four years ago, commanded by some kind of a neobarb, not a Gilgamesher, named Horus Sastroff. He claimed to be from Scathi. The locals there have a few ships. The Space Vikings had a base on Scathi about a hundred or so years ago. Naturally, the ship had no papers. Trap trading among the Neobarbs, it might be years before you'd put in on a planet where they'd ever heard of ship's papers, 
The ship seems to have been in bad shape, probably abandoned on Scathy as a junk a century ago, and tinkered up by the locals. She was in here twice, according to the commercial shipping records, and the second time she was in too bad shape to be moved out, and Sastroff couldn't pay to have her rebuilt, so she was libeled for spaceport charges and sold. Some one-lung trading company bought her and fixed her up a little. They went bankrupt in a year or so, and she was bought by another small company, Star Traders Limited, and they've been using her on a milk run to and from Gimli. They seem to be a legitimate outfit, but we're looking into them. We're looking for Sastroff, too, but we haven't been able to find him. If you have a ship out Gimli way, you might find out if anybody there knows anything about her. You may discover that she hasn't been going there at all. We might at that, Schefter agreed. We'll just find out. Everybody at Cragdale knew about the projected treaty with Tanith by the morning after Trask's first conversation with Prince Edvard on the subject. The queen of the royal bedroom, the royal playroom, and the royal bathroom was insisting that her domain should have a treaty with Tanith, too. It was beginning to look to Trask as though that would be the only treaty he'd sign on Marduk, and he was having his doubts about that. "'Do you think it would be wise?' he asked Lady Valerie Alvarath. The queen of three rooms and one four-footed subject had already decreed that Lady Valerie should be the space Viking prince's girl on the planet of Marduk. If it got out, these people's welfare lunatics would pick it up and twist it into evidence of some kind of a sinister plot. Oh, I believe Her Majesty could sign a treaty with Prince Trask, Her Majesty's Prime Minister decided. But it would have to be kept very secret. Gee, Myrna's eyes widened. A real secret treaty, just like the wicked rulers of the old dictatorship. She hugged her subject ecstatically. I'll bet Grandpa doesn't even have any secret treaties. In a few days, everybody on Marduk knew that a treaty with Tanith was being discussed. If they didn't, it was no fault of Zaspar McCann's party, who seemed to command a disconcertingly large number of telecast stations, and who drenched the ether with horror stories of space Viking atrocities and denunciations of carefully unnamed traitors surrounding the king and the crown prince who are about to betray Marduk to rapine and plunder. The leak evidently did not come from Cragdale, for it was generally believed that Trask was still at the royal palace at Malverton. At least that was where the mechanists were demonstrating against him. He watched such a demonstration by screen. The pickup was evidently on one of the landing stages of the palace, overlooking the wide park surrounding it. They were packed almost solid with people, surging forward toward the thin cordon of police. The front of the mob looked like a checkerboard, a block in civilian dress, then a block in the curiously effeminate-looking uniforms of Zaspar McCann's People's Watchmen, then more in ordinary garb, and more People's Watchmen. Over the heads of the crowds, at intervals, floated small contragravity lifters on which were mounted the amplifiers that were bellowing, "'Space Viking, go home! Space Viking, go home!' The police stood motionless at parade rest. The mob surged closer. 
When they were fifty yards away, the blocks of people's watchmen ran forward, then spread out until they formed a line six deep across the entire front. Other blocks from the rear pushed the ordinary demonstrators aside and took their place. Hating them more every second, Trask grudged approval of a smart and disciplined maneuver. How long, he wondered, had they been drilling in that sort of tactics? Without stopping, they continued their advance on the police, who had now shifted their stance. Space Viking, go home! Space Viking, go home! Fire! he heard himself yelling. Don't let them get any closer! Fire now! They had nothing to fire with. They had only truncheons, no better weapons than the knobbed swagger sticks of the people's watchmen. They simply disappeared after a brief flurry of blows, and the McCann stormtroopers continued their advance. And that was that. The gates of the palace were shut. The mob, behind a front of McCann's people's watchmen, surged up to them and stopped. The loudspeakers bellowed on, reiterating their four-word chant. "'Those police were murdered,' he said. "'They were murdered by the man who ordered them out there unarmed.' "'That would be Count Nadenair, the Minister of Security,' somebody said. "'Then he's the one you want to hang for it.' "'What else would you have done?' Crown Prince Edvard challenged. "'Put up about fifty combat cars.' drawn a deadline, and opened machine-gun fire as soon as the mob crossed it, and kept on firing till the survivors turned tail and ran, then sent out more cars, and shot everybody wearing a People's Watchman uniform all over town. Inside forty-eight hours there'd be no People's Welfare Party and no Zaspar McCann either. The Crown Prince's face stiffened. That may be the way you do things in the sword worlds, Prince Trask. It's not the way we do things here on Marduk. Our government does not propose to be guilty of shedding the blood of its people. He had it on the tip of his tongue to retort that if they didn't, the people would end by shedding theirs. Instead, he said softly, I'm sorry, Prince Edvard. You had a wonderful civilization here on Marduk. You could have made almost anything of it, but it's too late now. You've torn down the gates. The barbarians are in. 23. The colored turbulence faded into the gray of hyperspace, five hundred hours to Tanith. Guat Kirby was securing his control panel, happy to return to his music, and Van Larch would go back to his paints and brushes, and Alvin Carford to the working model of whatever it was he had left unfinished when the nemesis had emerged at the end of the jump from Altholma. Trask went to the index of the ship's library and punched for History Old Terran. There was plenty of that, thanks to Otto Harkeman. Then he punched for Hitler, Adolf. Harkeman was right. Anything that could happen in a human society had already happened, in one form or another, somewhere and at some time. Hitler could help him understand Zaspar McCann. By the time the ship came out, with the yellow sun of Tanith in the middle of the screen, he knew a great deal about Hitler, occasionally referred to as Schickelgruber, and he understood, with sorrow, how the lights of civilization on Marduk were going out. 
Beside the Lamia, stripped of her Dillinghams and crammed with heavy armament and detection instruments, the Space Scourge and the Queen Flavia were on off-planet watch. There were half a dozen other ships on orbit just above atmosphere. A Gilgamesher, one of the Graham Tanith freighters, a couple of freelance space Vikings, and a new and unfamiliar ship. When he asked the moon base who she was, he was told that she was the sun goddess, Amaterasu. That was, by almost a year, better than he had expected of them. Otto Harkeman was out in the Coruscandi, raiding and visiting the trade planets. He found his cousin, Nikolay Trask, at Rivington. When he inquired about Traskin, Nikolay cursed. "'I don't know anything about Traskin. I haven't anything to do with Traskin any more. Traskin is now the personal property of our well-loved, very well-loved, Queen Evita. The Trasks don't own enough land on Graham now for a family cemetery. You see what you did?' he added bitterly. "'You needn't rub it in, Nikolay. If I'd stayed on Graham, I'd have helped put Angus on the throne, and it would have been about the same in the end. It could be a lot different, Nikolay said. You could bring your ships and your men back to Graham and put yourself on the throne. No, I'll never go back to Graham. Tanith's my planet now. But I will renounce my allegiance to Angus. I can trade on Morglay or Joyeuse or Flamberge just as easily. You won't have to. You can trade with New Haven and Biglersport. Count Lionel and Duke Joris are both defying Angus. They've refused to furnish him men. They've driven out his tax collectors, those they haven't hanged, and they're building ships of their own. Angus is building ships, too. I don't know whether he's going to use them to fight Biglersport and New Haven or attack you, but there's going to be a war before another year's out. The Good Hope and the Speedwell, he found, had gone back to Graham. They were commanded by men who had come into favor at the court of King Angus recently. The Black Star and the Queen Flavia, whose captain had contemptuously ignored an order from Graham to rechristen her Queen Evita, had remained. They were his ships, not King Angus. The captain of the merchantman from Wardshaven, now on orbit, refused to take a cargo to New Haven. He had been chartered by King Angus, and would take orders from no one else. "'All right,' Trask told him. "'This is your last voyage here. You bring that ship back under Angus of Wardshaven's charter, and we'll fire on her.' Then he had the regalia he had worn in his last audio-visual to Angus dusted off. At first he had decided to proclaim himself King of Tanith. Lord Valpry, Baron Rathmore, and his cousin all advised against it. "'Just call yourself Prince of Tanith,' Valpry said. "'The title won't make any difference in your authority here, and if you do lay claim to the throne of Graham, nobody can say you're a foreign king trying to annex the planet.' He had no intention of doing anything of the kind, but Valpry was quite in earnest. So he sat on his throne, as sovereign prince of Tanith, and renounced his allegiance to Angus, Duke of Wardshaven, self-styled King of Graham. They sent it back on the otherwise empty freighter. Another copy went to the Count of Newhaven, along with a cargo in the Sun Goddess, 
the first non-space Viking ship into Graham from the old Federation. Seven hundred and fifty hours after the return of the Nemesis, the Coruscanti II emerged from her last micro-jump, and immediately Harkaman began hearing of the Battle of Althalma and the destruction of the Yo-Yo and the Enterprise. At first he merely reported a successful raiding voyage, from which he was bringing rich booty. Oddly variegated booty, it was remarked, when he began itemizing it. "'Why, yes,' he replied, "'second-hand booty. I raided Dagon for it.' Dagon was a space Viking base planet, occupied by a character named Fedric Baragon. A number of ships operated from it, including a couple commanded by Baragon's half-breed sons. "'Baragon ships were raiding one of our planets,' Harkaman said. Ganpat. They looted a couple of cities, destroyed one, killed a lot of the locals. I found out about it from Captain Ravallo of the Black Star on Indra. He'd just been from Ganpat. Beowulf wasn't too far out of the way, so we put in there, and found the Grendelsbane just ready to space out. The Grendelsbane was the second of Beowulf's ships, sister to the Viking's gift. So she joined us, and the three of us went to Dagon. We blew up one of Baragon's ships and put the other one down out of commission, and then we sacked his base. There was a Gilgamesher colony there. We didn't bother them. They'll tell what we did and why. That should furnish Prince Victor of Zachittal something to ponder, Trask said. Where are the other ships now? The Grendelsbane went back to Beowulf. She'll stop at Amaterasu to do a little trading on the way. The Black Star went to Zachittal. Just a friendly visit, to say hello to Prince Victor for you. Ravallo has a lot of audio-visuals we made during the Dagon operation. Then she's going to Jaganath to visit Nicky Gratham. Harkaman approved his attitude and actions with regard to King Angus. We don't need to do business with the Sword Worlds at all. We have our own industries, we can produce what we need, and we can trade with Beowulf and Amaterasu, and with Zachittal and Jaganath and Hoth, if we can make any sort of agreement with them. Everybody agrees to let everybody else's trade planets alone. It's too bad you couldn't get some kind of an agreement with Marduk." Harkaman regretted that for a few seconds, and then shrugged. Our grandchildren, if any, will probably be raiding Marduk. You think it'll be like that? Don't you? You were there. You saw what's happening. The barbarians are rising. They have a leader, and they're uniting. Every society rests on a barbarian base. The people who don't understand civilization, and wouldn't like it if they did. The hitchhikers. The people who create nothing, and who don't appreciate what the others have created for them, and who think civilization is something that just exists and that all they need to do is enjoy what they can understand of it, luxuries, a high living standard, and easy work for high pay. Responsibilities? Fooey! What do they have a government for?" Trask nodded. And now the hitchhikers think they know more about the car than the people who designed it, so they're going to grab the controls. Zaspar McCann says they can, and he's the leader. He poured a drink from a decanter that had been looted on Pushan. 
There was a planet where a republic had been overthrown in favor of a dictatorship four centuries ago, and the planetary dictatorship had fissioned into a dozen regional dictatorships, and now they were down to the peasant village and handcraft industry level. I don't understand it, though. I was reading about Hitler on the way home. I wouldn't be surprised if Zaspar McCann had been reading about Hitler, too. He's using all Hitler's tricks. But Hitler came to power in a country which had been impoverished by a military defeat. Marduk hasn't fought a war in almost two generations, and that one was a farce. It wasn't the war that put Hitler into power. It was the fact that the ruling class of his nation, the people who kept things running, were discredited. The masses, the homemade barbarians, didn't have anybody to take their responsibilities for them. What they have on Marduk is a ruling class that has been discrediting itself, a ruling class that's ashamed of its privileges and shirks its duties, a ruling class that has begun to believe that the masses are just as good as they are, which they manifestly are not, and a ruling class that won't use force to maintain its position, and they have a democracy and they are letting the enemies of democracy shelter themselves behind democratic safeguards. We don't have any of this democracy in the sword worlds, if that's the word for it, he said. And our ruling class aren't ashamed of their power. And our people aren't hitchhikers. And as long as they get decent treatment, they don't try to run things. And we're not doing so well the Morglay dynastic war of a couple of centuries ago, still sputtering and smoking, the Oscarson-Elmerson war on Durendal, into which Flamberge and now Joyeuse had intruded, and the situation on Graham, fast approaching critical mass, Harkeman nodded agreement. You know why? Our rulers are the barbarians among us. There isn't one of them, Napoleon of Flamberge, Rodolphe of Excalibur, or Angus of about half of Graham, who is devoted to civilization, or anything else outside himself, and that's the mark of the barbarian. What are you devoted to, Otto? You! You are my chieftain! That's another mark of the barbarian. Before he had left Marduk, Admiral Schefter had ordered a ship to Gimli to check on the honest Horus. A few men and a pinnace would be left behind to contact any ship from Tanith. He sent Boke Valkenhayn off in the space scourge. Lionel of New Haven's Blue Comet came in from Graham with a cargo of general merchandise. Her captain wanted fishnables and gadolinium. Count Lionel was building more ships. There was a rumor that Omfrey of Glaspeth was laying claim to the throne of Graham, in the right of his great-grandmother's sister who had been married to the great-grandfather of Duke Angus. It was a completely trivial and irrelevant claim, but the story was that it would be supported by King Conrad of Halteclere. Immediately Baron Rathmore, Lord Valpry, Lothar Fale, and the other grand people began clamoring that he should go back with a fleet and seize the throne for himself. Harkeman, Valkenhayn, Carford, and the other space Vikings were as vehement against it. Harkeman had the loss of the other Corisandi on Durendal to remember, and the others wanted no part in sword-world squabbles, 
and there was renewed agitation that he should start calling himself King of Tanith. He refused to do either, which left both parties dissatisfied. So partisan politics had finally come to Tanith. Maybe that was another milestone of progress. And there was the Treaty of Capera between the princely state of Tanith, the Commonwealth of Beowulf, and the Planetary League of Amaterasu. The Caparans agreed to allow bases on their planet, to furnish workers, and to send students to school on all three planets. Tanith, Beowulf, and Amaterasu obliged themselves to joint defense of Capera, to free trade among themselves, and to render one another armed assistance. That was a milestone of progress, and no argument about it. The space scourge returned from Gimli, and Valkenhayn reported that nobody on the planet had ever seen or heard of the honest Horus. They had found a Marduckan navy ship's pinnace there, manned entirely by officers, some of them navy intelligence. According to them, the investigation into the activities of that ship had come to an impasse. The ostensible owners claimed, and had papers to prove it, that they had chartered her to a private trader, and he claimed, and had papers to prove it, that he was a citizen of the Planetary Republic of Aton, and as soon as they began questioning him he was rescued by the Atonian ambassador, who lodged a vehement protest with the Marduckan foreign ministry. Immediately the People's Welfare Party had leaped into the incident and branded the investigation as an unwarranted prosecution of a nation of a friendly power at the instigation of corrupt tools of the Gilgamesh interstellar conspiracy. "'So that's it,' Valkenhayn finished. "'It seems they're having an election and they're afraid to antagonize anybody who might have a vote. So the Navy had to drop the investigation.' Everybody on Marduk's scared of this, McCann. You think there might be some tie-up between him and Dunnan? The ideas occurred to me. Have there been any more raids on Marduk trade planets since the Battle of Outholma? A couple. The Bolide was on Outholma a while ago. There were a couple of Marduckan ships there, and they had the Vitrix fixed up enough to do some fighting. They ran the Bolide out. A study of the time between the destruction of the Enterprise and Yo-Yo and the appearance of the Bolide could give them a limiting radius around Outholma. It did. Seven hundred light-years, which also included Tanith. So he sent Harkaman in the Corsandi and Ravallo in the Black Star to visit the planets Marduk traded with, looking for Dunnan ships and exchanging information and assistance with the Royal Marduckan Navy. Almost at once he regretted it. The next Gilgamesher into orbit on Tanith brought a story that Prince Victor was collecting a fleet on Zochitl. He sent warnings off to Amaterasu and Beowulf and Capera. A ship came in from Biglersport, a heavily armed chartered freighter. There was sporadic fighting in a dozen places on Graham now, resistance to efforts on the part of King Angus to collect taxes and raids by unidentified persons, on estates confiscated from alleged traitors and given to Garvin Spasso, who had now been promoted from baron to count. And Rovard Grafus was dead, poisoned, everybody said, 
either by Spasso or Queen Evita or both. Even with the threat from Zachittal, some of the former Wardshaven nobles began talking about sending ships to Graham. Less than a thousand hours after he had left, Ravallo was back in the Black Star. I went to Gimli, and I wasn't there fifty hours before a Marducan navy ship came in. They were glad to see me. It saved them sending off a pinnace for Tanith. They had news for you, and a couple of passengers. Passengers? Yes. You'll see who they are when they come down. And don't let anybody with side-whiskers and button-up coats see them, Ravallo said. What those people know gets all over the place before long. The visitors were Lucille, Princess Bentrick, and her son, the young Count of Ravery. They dined with Trask. Only Captain Ravallo was also present. I didn't want to leave my husband, and I didn't want to come here and impose myself and Stephen on you, Prince Trask, she began, but he insisted. We spent the whole voyage to Gimli concealed in the captain's quarters. Only a few of the officers knew we were aboard. McCann won the election, is that it? he asked. And Prince Bentrick doesn't want to risk you and Stephen being used as hostages? That's it, she said. He didn't really win the election, but he might as well have. Nobody has a majority of seats in the Chamber of Representatives, but he's formed a coalition with several of the splinter parties, and, I'm ashamed to say, that a number of Crown Loyalist members, crowd of disloyalists, I call them, are voting with him now. They've coined some ridiculous phrase about the wave of the future, whatever that means. If you can't lick them, join them, Trask said. If you can't lick them, lick their boots, the Count of Ravery put in. My son is a trifle bitter, Princess Bentrick said. I must confess to a trace of bitterness, too. Well, that's the representatives, Trask said. What about the rest of the government? With the Splinter Party and disloyalist support, they got a majority of seats in the delegates. Most of them would have indignantly denied, a month before, having any connection with McCann, but a hundred out of a hundred and twenty are his supporters. McCann, of course, is Chancellor. "'And who is Prime Minister?' he asked. "'Andre Dunnan?' She looked slightly baffled for an instant, then said, "'Oh, no, the Prime Minister is Crown Prince Edvard. No, Baron Cragdale.' That isn't a royal title, so by some kind of a fiction I can't pretend to understand he is not Prime Minister as a member of the royal family. If you can't, the boy started, Stephen, I forbid you to say that about Baron Cragdale. He believes, very sincerely, that the election was an expression of the will of the people, and that it is his duty to bow to it. He wished Otto Harkeman were there. He could probably name, without stopping for breath, a hundred great nations that went down into rubble because their rulers believed that they should bow instead of rule, and couldn't bring themselves to shed the blood of their people. Edvard would have been a fine and admirable man, as a little country baron. Where he was, he was a disaster. He asked if the people's watchmen had dragged their guns out from under the bed and started carrying them in public yet. Oh, yes, you were quite right, 
They were armed all the time. Not just small arms, combat vehicles and heavy weapons. As soon as the new government was formed, they were given status as a part of the planetary armed forces. They have taken over every police station on the planet. And the king? Oh, he carries on, and shrugs, and says, I just reign here. What else can he do? We've been whittling down and filching away the powers of the throne for the last three centuries. What is Prince Bentrick doing? And why did he think there was danger that you two would be used as hostages? He's going to fight, she said. Don't ask me how, or what with. Maybe as a gorilla in the mountains, I don't know. But if he can't lick them, he won't join them. I wanted to stay with him and help him. He told me I could help him best by placing myself and Stephen where he wouldn't worry about us. I wanted to stay, the boy said. I could have fought with him. But he said that I must take care of Mother, and if he were killed I must be able to avenge him. You talk like a sword-worlder. I told you that once before. He hesitated, then turned again to Princess Bentrick. How is little Princess Myrna? he asked, and then, trying to be casual, added, and Lady Valerie. She seemed so clearly real and present to him, blue eyes and space-black hair, more real than Elaine had been to him for years. They're at Cragdale. They'll be safe there, I hope. 24. Attempting to conceal the presence on Tanith of Prince Bentrick's wife and son was pushing caution beyond necessity. Admitted that the news would leak back to Marduk via Gilgamesh, it was over seven hundred light-years to the latter and almost a thousand from there to the former. Better that Princess Lucille should enjoy Rivington society, such as it was, and escape, for a moment now and then, from anxiety about her husband. At ten—no, almost twelve—it had been a year and a half since Trask had left Marduk, the boy Count of Ravery was more easily diverted. At last he was among real space Vikings, on a space Viking planet and he was trying to be everywhere and see everything at once. No doubt he would be imagining himself a space Viking, returning to Marduk with a vast armada to rescue his father and the king from Zaspar Makan. Trask was satisfied with that. As a host he left much to be desired. He had his worries too, and all of them bore the same name, Prince Victor of Zotchitl. He went over with Manfred Ravallo everything the captain of the Black Star could tell him. He had talked once with Victor. The Lord of Zotchitl had been coldly polite and noncommittal. His subordinates had been frankly hostile. There had been five ships on orbit or landed at Victor's spaceport beside the usual Gilgameshers and itinerant traders, two of them Victor's own and a big armed freighter that had come in from Halteclere as the Black Star was leaving. There was considerable activity at the shipyards and around the spaceport, as though in preparation for something on a large scale. Zotchittle was a thousand light-years from Tanith. He rejected, immediately, the idea of launching a preventive attack. 
his ships might reach Zarchittal to find it undefended, and then return to find Tanith devastated. Things like that had happened in space war. The only thing to do was sit tight, defend Tanith when Victor attacked, and then counterattack if he had any ships left by that time. Prince Victor was probably reasoning in the same way. He had no time to think about Andre Dunnan, except, now and then, to wish that Otto Harkeman would stop thinking about him and bring the Corisandi home. He needed that ship on Tanith, and the wits and courage of her commander. More news, Gilgamesh sources, came in from Zachittal. There were only two ships, both armed merchantmen, on the planet. Prince Victor had spaced out with the rest an estimated two thousand hours before the story reached him. That was twice as long as it would take the Zachittal Armada to reach Tanith. He hadn't gone to Beowulf. That was only sixty-five hours from Tanith, and they would have heard about it long ago. Or Amaterasu. Or Capera. How many ships he had was a question. Not fewer than five, and possibly more. He could have slipped into the Tanith system and hidden his ships on one of the outer, uninhabitable planets. He sent Valkenhayn and Ravallo micro-jumping their ships from one to another to check. They returned to report in the negative. At least, Victor of Zachittal wasn't camped inside their own system, waiting for them to leave Tanith open to attack. But he was somewhere, and up to nothing even resembling good, and there was no possible way of guessing when his ships would be emerging on Tanith. The only thing to do was wait for him. When he did, Trask was confident that he would emerge from hyperspace into serious trouble. He had the Nemesis, the Space Scourge, the Black Star, and Queen Flavia, the strongly rebuilt Lamia, and several independent space Viking ships, among them the damn thing of his friend Roger Fenn Morville Esthersan, who had volunteered to stay and help in the defense. This, of course, was not pure altruism. If Victor attacked and had his fleet blown to M.C. Square, Zachittal would lie open and unprotected, and there was enough loot on Zachittal to cram everybody's ships. Everybody's ships who had ships when the Battle of Tanith was over, of course. He was apologetic to Princess Bentrick. I'm very sorry you jumped out of Zaspar McCann's frying-pan into Prince Victor's fire, he began. She laughed at that. I'll take my chances on the fire. I seem to see a lot of good firemen around. If there is a battle, you will see that Stephen's in a safe place, won't you? In a space attack, there are no safe places. I'll keep him with me. The young Count of Ravery wanted to know which ship he would serve on when the attack came. Well, you won't be on any ship, Count. You'll be on my staff. Two days later, the Corisandi came out of hyperspace. Harkeman was guardedly noncommittal by screen. Trask took a landing craft and went out to meet the ship. Marduk doesn't like us any more, Harkeman told him. They have ships on all their trade planets, and they all have orders to fire on any, repeat, any space Vikings, including the ships of the self-styled Prince of Tanith. 
I got this from Captain Garraway of the Vindex. After we were through talking, we fought a nice little ship-to-ship -ship action for him to make films of. I don't think anybody could see anything wrong with it. This order came from McCann? From the Admiral commanding. He isn't your friend Schefter. Schefter retired, on account of, quote, ill health, unquote. He is now in a, quote, hospital, unquote. Where's Prince Bentrick? Nobody knows. Charges of high treason were brought against him, and he just vanished. Gone underground, or secretly arrested and executed, take your choice. He wondered just what he'd tell Princess Lucille and Count Stephen. They have ships on all the planets they trade with. Fourteen of them. That isn't to catch Dunnan. That's to disperse the Navy away from Marduk. They don't trust the Navy. Is Prince Edvard still Prime Minister? Yes, as of Garraway's last information. It seems McCann is behaving in a scrupulously legal manner outside of making his people's watchmen part of the armed forces, protesting his devotion to the king every time he opens his mouth. When will the fire be, I wonder? Huh? Oh, yes, you were reading up on Hitler. That I don't know. Probably happened by now. He just told Princess Lucille that her husband had gone into hiding. He couldn't be sure whether she was relieved or more worried. The boy was sure that he was doing something highly romantic and heroic. Some of the volunteers tired of waiting. After another thousand hours, they spaced out. The Viking's gift of Beowulf came in with cargo, and went out on orbit after discharging it to join the watch. A Gilgamesher came in from Amaterasu and reported everything quiet there. As soon as her captain had sold his cargo, with a minimum of haggling, he spaced out again. His behavior convinced everybody that the attack would come in a matter of hours. It didn't. Three thousand hours had passed since the first warning had reached Tanith. That made five thousand since Victor's ships were supposed to have left Zochitl. There were those, Boke Valkenhayn among them, who doubted now if he ever had. The whole thing's just a big Gilgamesher lie, he was declaring. Somebody, Nicky Gratham, or the Everards, or maybe Victor himself, paid them to tell us that, to pin our ships down here. Or they made it up themselves, so they could make hay on our trade planets. Let's go down to the ghetto and clean out the whole gang, somebody else took up. Anything one of them's in, they're all in together. Niflheim with that, let's all space out for Zotchittel, Manfred Ravallo proposed. We have enough ships to lick them on Tanith, we have enough to lick them on their own planet. He managed to talk them out of both courses of action. What was he, anyhow? Sovereign Prince of Tanith, or the non-ruling King of Marduk, or just the chieftain of a disciplineless gang of barbarians? One of the independents spaced out in disgust. The next day, two others came in loaded with booty from a raid on Braggy, and decided to stay around a while and see what happened. And four days after that, a five-hundred-foot hyperspace yacht, bearing the daggers and chevrons of Biglersport, came in. As soon as she was out of the last micro-jump, she began calling by screen. Trask didn't know the man who was screening, 
but Hugh Rathmore did. Duke Joris, confidential secretary. "'Prince Trask, I must speak to you as soon as possible,' he began, almost stuttering. Whatever the urgency of his mission, one would have thought that a three-thousand-hour voyage would have taken some of the edge out of it. "'It is of the first importance.' "'You are speaking to me. This screen is reasonably secure. And if it's of the first importance, the sooner you tell me about it. Prince Trask, you must come to Graham, with every man and every ship you can command. Satan only knows what's happening there now, but three thousand hours ago, when the Duke sent me off, Omfrey of Glaspeth was landing on Wardshaven. He has a fleet of eight ships, furnished to him by his wife's kinsman, the King of Halteclere. They are commanded by King Conrad's space-viking cousin, the Prince of Zotchittel. Then a look of shocked surprise came into the face of the man on the screen, and Trask wondered why, until he realized that he had leaned back in his chair and was laughing uproariously. Before he could apologize, the man in the screen had found his voice. "'I know, Prince Trask, you have no reason to think kindly of King Angus, the former King Angus, or maybe even the late King Angus, I suppose he is now, but a murderer like Omfrey of Glaspeth." It took a little time to explain to the confidential secretary of the Duke of Biglersport the humor of the situation. There were others at Rivington to whom it was not immediately evident. The professional space Vikings, men like Valkenhayn and Ravallo and Alvin Carford, were disgusted. Here they'd been sitting, on combat alert, all these months, and if they'd only known, they could have gone to Zotchittel and looted it clean long ago. The Graham party were outraged. Angus of Wardshaven had been bad enough, with the hereditary taint of the mad baron of Blackcliff, and Queen Evita and her rapacious family, but even he was preferable to a murderous villain, some even called him a fiend in human shape, like Omfrey of Glaspeth. Both parties, of course, were positive as to where their prince's duty lay. The former insisted that everything on Tanith that could be put into hyperspace should be dispatched at once to Zachittal, to haul back from it everything except a few absolutely immovable natural features of the planet. The latter clamored, just as loudly and passionately, that everybody on Tanith who could pull a trigger should be embarked at once on a crusade for the deliverance of Graham. "'You don't want to do either, do you?' Harkaman asked him, when they were alone after the second day of acrimony. "'Niflheim, no. This crowd that wants an attack on Zachittel, you know what would happen if we did that?' Harkaman was silent, waiting for him to continue. "'Inside a year, four or five of these small planet-holders, like Graytham and the Everards, would combine against us and make a slag-pile out of Tanith. Harkeman nodded agreement. Since we warned him the first time, Victor's kept his ships away from our planets. If we attack Zachittal now, without provocation, nobody know what to expect from us. People like Nicky Graytham and Tobin of Nergal and the Everards of Hoth get nervous around unpredictable dangers, and when they get nervous, they get trigger-happy. He puffed slowly on his pipe, and then said, "'Then you'll be going back to Graham.' "'That doesn't follow. 
Just because Valkenhayn and Ravallo and that crowd are wrong doesn't make Valpri and Rathmore and Fail right. You heard what I was telling those very people at Carvel House the day I met you. And you've seen what's been happening on Graham since we came out here. Otto, the sword worlds are finished. They're half de-civilized now. Civilization is alive and growing here on Tanith. I want to stay here and help it grow. Look, Lucas, Harkaman said, you're Prince of Tanith, and I'm only the Admiral. But I'm telling you, you'll have to do something, or this whole setup of yours will fall apart. As it stands, you can attack Zachittal, and the Back to Graham party would go along. Or you can decide on this crusade against Omfrey of Glaspeth, and the Raid Zachittal Now party would go along. But if you let this go on much longer, you won't have influence over either party. And then I will be finished. And in a few years, Tanith will be finished. He rose and paced across the room and back. Well, I won't raid Zachittal. I told you why, and you agreed. And I won't spend the men and ships and wealth of Tanith in any sword-world dynastic squabble. Great Satan, Otto! You were in the Durendal War. This is the same thing, and it'll go on for another half a century. Then what will you do? I came out here after Andre Dunnan, didn't I? he asked. I'm afraid Ravallo and Valpri, or even Valkenhayn and Morlin, won't be as interested in Dunnan as you are. Then I will interest them in him. Remember, I was reading up on Hitler, coming in from Marduk. I will tell them all a big lie. Such a big lie that nobody will dare to disbelieve it. End of chapter 24